and just grateful to have the opportunity to talk a little bit this morning about church history as we continue the series that we started last week. Now, just a little bit of an introduction as we get going. If you weren't here last week, that's okay. That's no problem. And if you don't have the workbook that goes along with this, that's also okay and no problem. You can actually access these PowerPoint slides on a website. It's forerunnersofthefaith.com. And you can find the slides for this lecture today, this, I guess, what Abner Chow calls a lerman, somewhere between a sermon and a lecture. You can find those slides on that website. This is lesson two. And if you missed last week, you can find the slides from last week there as well. And then just one other thing to mention before we get going, kind of a housekeeping item, that is that certain things on the slides, I mentioned this last week, are underlined. That's because that corresponds with blanks that are in the workbook. So if you look at the slides and you're like, why did he underline that phrase? It's simply because it corresponds with the workbook. But you don't, as I mentioned already, you don't need the workbook in order to listen and learn from the material. Okay, we're in part two then of a series as we walk through the history of the church. And I'm excited to get the opportunity to walk with you. I'll be here this week and next week, and then I'll be gone for a couple of weeks and then back a few more times over the course of the fall as we kind of work our way through the history of the church. And one of the things that we were talking about last week is that many Christians have a very incomplete understanding of the history of the church. And I mentioned that that was me. In fact, when I came to seminary, my understanding of church history was very, very incomplete. And perhaps that's you as well. And so I'm hopeful that this series will encourage you as we walk through the centuries of what God has done to advance the gospel of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to build his church. Today in particular, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts and a little bit beyond the book of Acts, the first century of the history of the church. Last week, we talked about church history is kind of like a building and we had four floors on our building and in each floor, we have five rooms and those five rooms each represent a century. And today we'll be in room number one, floor number one, the first century of the church. We also talked about three doctrinal pillars last week a right view of the Savior, that's the worship of God, a right view of the Scriptures, that's the Word of God, and a right view of salvation, that's the work of God. And those three pillars characterize the boundary markers of biblical orthodoxy, which is to say that as we go through church history, we're looking for those who are marked by and characterized by those doctrinal pillars. So that's how what we talked about last week sets the table for what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to the book of Acts. So this morning, we're going to be spending time in the only part of church history for which we have an inspired and authoritative record, and that is the book of Acts, which is the first book of church history ever written. And like I tell my seminary students, God cares enough about church history. He put a book of it in your New Testaments, and that is the book of Acts. All right, this lesson is called From Pentecost to Patmos, 
And I will do my best to get through this so that we have a little bit of time at the end for some questions. In fact, I'll just give him warning now. I'll have Jade come back up if we have a little bit of time at the end to kind of facilitate a time of question and answer. From Pentecost to Patmos. So Pentecost is a reference to Acts chapter 2 and the beginning of the church age. The church begins in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then the first century of church history really ends with the death of the apostle John, who just before his death, he probably died in Ephesus, but just before his death, he was exiled under the reign of a Roman emperor named Domitian to the Isle of Patmos. And while he was there on the Isle of Patmos, he received a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is recorded in the book of Revelation. So from Pentecost to Patmos is kind of the boundary markers of the first century of church history. Now, in order to introduce this, we need to kind of understand that the first century of church history is unique. It is distinct from all of the other centuries of church history because it was the apostolic age. And of course, then the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, though probably more accurately, it's the Acts or action of the Holy Spirit and what he did through the apostles. You'll remember that in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus in the upper room just hours before his crucifixion told his disciples that he was going to go away, but he was going to send the spirit of truth. And when the spirit of truth came, he was going to reveal to the apostles both by memory all the things that Jesus had taught them and also by revelation new things that they were going to reveal to the church. And that promise of Christ, John 14, 26, John 16, 12 to 15, that promise of Christ to his apostles is fulfilled in the New Testament and we see the fulfillment of that in terms of the history in the book of Acts. The book of Acts represents roughly 30 years of the history of the church. We think Luke probably wrote this around AD 62 or 63, right at the tail end of Paul's first Roman imprisonment. In fact, if you read Acts 28, that's where the book of Acts ends. Why does it end there? Because Luke was probably writing right up to the point of that present moment in history. And we we believe that the day of Pentecost was probably the year AD 30, There's a few different options. It could have been 32 or 33, but the MacArthur Study Bible says AD 30, so I like that date the best, which means that the book of Acts would have covered 32 to 33 years of church history. So if Luke was writing the book of Acts today, that would mean that the day of Pentecost was in 1991. So that just gives you kind of a perspective of the the length of time that is covered in the book of Acts. It's more than three decades of time. A key verse, really the key verse in the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, where Jesus, right before his ascension, and this, by the way, is different than the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Matthew 28. That was in Galilee. This is a little bit after that, back in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, right before Jesus ascends into heaven. He tells his apostles that they are to be his witnesses 
It's actually from the Greek word martus, which is the word from which we get the English word martyr. But you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And that really functions as an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 is the gospel being spread and preached throughout Jerusalem and Judea. Chapter 8, the gospel going to the Samaritans. And then chapters 9 through 28, the gospel going to the ends of the known world, primarily through the ministry of the apostle Paul. So if you want to think about an outline of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8 not only serves as kind of a thesis statement, but also the outline itself for the book. And in some ways, the outline for all of church history, because all of church history is the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And really, if you think about it geographically, Los Angeles is almost as far away as you can get from Jerusalem as any other place on the planet. So we are the recipients of this reality that the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. All right, I want to talk just a little bit about the apostles themselves. The title Apostle of Jesus Christ, the title Apostle of Jesus Christ was a special title that was given to the 11 plus Matthias plus the Apostle Paul and possibly James, the brother of Jesus, according to Galatians 1.19. But it was a very select group, and it had very specific criteria associated with it. So the word apostle means like ambassador or emissary or representative. It would kind of like being, it would kind of like, uh, it would be similar to uh, an ambassador, for example, of a country that's representing its country in a foreign land, right? An ambassador would be a good synonym for the word apostle. Well, kind of like the word ambassador, if I'm just a general goodwill ambassador, you can kind of use that in a generic sense. But if I'm an ambassador of the United States, that means something very, very specific. And to be an apostle of Jesus Christ was a very specific title, and it was only given to a handful of men early in church history. An apostle of Jesus Christ had to meet three criteria. Number one, they had to be a physical eyewitness of the risen Christ. And if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 sometime, you'll notice that the apostle Paul actually says that of all the eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was the last So there can't be any more apostles after the apostle Paul because he was the last to see the risen Christ with his own eyes. And then secondly, they had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. And thirdly, they had to be able to perform the signs of an apostle. Now, the reason I'm sort of focusing on this just for a moment is because sometimes in broader Christianity, you have people today who claim to be apostles. But biblically, they cannot meet the criteria of what it meant to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's so significant is because the apostles, capital A, apostles of Jesus Christ, were given special authority by Christ to reveal truth to the entire church which means that during the apostolic age, the canon of the New Testament was open 
Things were being added to it from the apostles. But after the apostle John dies around the year 100, the canon is necessarily closed because without an apostle of Jesus Christ, you cannot add any apostolic revelation to the New Testament. So we're in the apostolic age and... The Apostle John, as we mentioned, was the last surviving apostle. No one after the Apostle John can claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And in fact, next week when we get into some of uh, a group of early Christian leaders that we call the early church fathers, kind of like the founding fathers of America, when we get into that group, we'll find that no one in church history after the time of the Apostle John claimed to be an apostle at least not until the 20th century with the rise of the charismatic movement. But there was an understanding in church history that the apostles of Jesus Christ were unique and therefore the apostolic age was unique. Now just a little bit about the day of Pentecost, right? In Matthew 16, 18, the Lord Jesus Christ gave a promise and his promise was that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In fact, we talked about that a little bit last week, that the rock on which the church is built is the confession, the truth of the confession that Peter made when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that truth is the rock on which the church is built, the truth that Jesus is the only and exclusive savior and that he is indeed the son of God. And Jesus said, on that truth, I will build my church, future tense, and that promise comes to fruition on the day of Pentecost, probably in the year AD 30, which is why I have that there. Now, just a little bit about uh, the dating system that we have in Western society Traditionally, the Western dating system is organized with BC and AD. BC means before Christ. AD means Anno Domine, which is Latin for in the year of our Lord. Uh, In modern times, some who don't like the Christian elements of that have tried to add letters to it to kind of make it not be what it really was. But in any case, BC and AD. Now, that system began to be developed in the year 525 AD by a monk named Dionysius Exiguus. That's not on any exam or test, but just in case you were curious. Uh, So 525, so almost 1,500 years ago is when that system was developed. And because of the lack of academic archaeological, scholarly resources that existed in the 6th century, they probably weren't quite right in identifying the year when Jesus was born. So most modern scholars believe that Christ was born in Bethlehem probably around the year 5 BC, which I realize it doesn't make any sense because how can you have Christ before Christ? But it's because in 525 Dionysius was just a little bit off. And the reason they believe that is because archaeological evidence suggests that Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and we know from Matthew and from Luke that Herod the Great was still alive when Jesus was born. Remember, Herod was the one that tried to kill Jesus, and he did so by executing all of the infants in Bethlehem who were aged two or younger. So that means when Herod died, probably right around that time, that 
uh, the birth of Christ took place less than two years from that. If that's the case, then around the year AD 8, Jesus would have gone to the temple because he was 12 years old at that time. And then Luke says that he was around 30 when he began his ministry. So that would have been around AD 26. And his ministry was three and a half years long. So that would put Pentecost around AD 30, taking place 50 days after Passover. And it would have been that Passover where the Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross. Now, again, we don't know with 100% certainty that these dates are precise, but we know that they're very close. So within two to three years of this is with a high degree of certainty when Jesus ministered and when he died. If these dates are correct, I think this is kind of interesting. If these dates are correct, then in seven years, we will celebrate the 2000th anniversary of both the death and resurrection of our Lord, and also the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. Now, at Pentecost itself, in Acts chapter 1, you have Jesus ascend, and the disciples all gather in an upper room in Jerusalem. It's not just the 11, but actually a larger group of the followers of Jesus, and that would have been 120, or about 120, Luke says in Acts chapter 1. And they're there for 10 days between the resurrection, which is, excuse me, between the ascension, which is 40 days after the resurrection, and the day of Pentecost. So just over a week while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, which he does, on the day of Pentecost, this is a line drawing of an artist's rendition of what happened in the upper room when the tongues of fire suddenly appeared above the heads of the 120 who are gathered there. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, whether or not it really was, personally, I don't think the tongues of fire looked like little flickers of flame. That's sort of like the Methodist church symbol or like Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast. I, I don't really think that's what it was. I think it was more like streaks of lightning and it was a, an illustration of God's presence at Mount Sinai when he made a covenant with Israel. Now he is making a covenant with the church. But in any case, the text doesn't tell us exactly. We just know that it was tongues of fire and those tongues of fire then were accompanied as well by a miraculous ability on the part of these 120 to speak in various languages which they had never learned. So these 120 followers of Jesus are almost all from Galilee. They would have grown up speaking Aramaic, which was the colloquial language of Israel at the time. They would have also known Hebrew because Hebrew was the formal language of instruction in the synagogue and at the temple. But you had, because of the Assyrian conquest and the Babylonian conquest and the Persian conquest and the Greek conquest, you had Jewish people who had scattered all throughout the Middle East who didn't grow up in Galilee, like Saul. Saul grew up in Tarsus. He didn't grow up in Israel. So they would have grown up knowing Hebrew because they would have heard it and studied it, but that wasn't their mother tongue. They would have spoken some other dialect. And they all come together for Pentecost. And it's an amazing, an amazing miracle when the 120, including the 
now 12 apostles, because Matthias was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot, stand up and begin praising God in these foreign languages that they had never gone to school to learn, right? That would be an incredible miracle. If I all of a sudden was able to start speaking fluently in, I don't know, Chinese or Arabic or honestly any language other than English, it would be a miracle. And that's what the gift of tongues was. In fact, Luke lists, I believe it's 16 different dialects or regions where these foreign languages were were spoken there in Acts chapter 2. And the reason I'm emphasizing that point is because Unfortunately, today, the charismatic movement has turned the gift of tongues into something that the gift of tongues never was, nor was it ever thought to be for 1900 years of church history, which is this sort of private prayer speech that doesn't actually correspond to any known language at all. You can't just mumble syllables that are nonsensical and claim that it's the gift of tongues. That's not miraculous. What was happening on the day of Pentecost was miraculous, and it was given to do two things. Number one, it was a sign to unbelieving Israel, going all the way back to the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah told them, when you start to hear foreign languages being spoken in your midst, you know that you are under God's judgment. And Paul talks about how it was assigned to Israel in 1 Corinthians 14. But then beyond that, it was also a symbol of the fact that the gospel now was going to go beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth. So in keeping with Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, what is a sign that shows that the gospel is going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth? The fact that on the day of Pentecost, the Tower of Babel was undone, and you have the followers of Jesus speaking in those languages that represented people groups from all over the world. So, really, really amazing. That obviously drew a crowd, and Peter on the southern steps of the temple preaches an amazing message. You can read it there in the second half of Acts chapter 2, and it concludes with Luke there in Acts chapter 2 saying that there were some 3,000 souls that were added to the church, and the church then was born. And in fact, right there on that southern part of the temple, there were many, many places for a form of ritual baptism, and so these Now, new believers were baptized, and then they were added to the church. So that's Acts chapter 2, the church being born. Now, after Pentecost, and uh, you'll see there that I believe that these events in Acts chapter 3 through Acts chapter 7 took place probably in the first two, maybe three years of the history of the church. So from AD 30 to 32, or maybe 33, we have in Acts chapter 3, we have a lame man that is healed. This brings another crowd. Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches another amazing sermon, and many hundreds more are added to the church. This uh, invokes the the anger of the religious leaders who tell Peter and John in Acts 4 to stop preaching in the name of Jesus 
And Peter and John say, we can't stop preaching in the name of Jesus, right? We've been commissioned to be his witnesses. And the fact that you're telling us not to do that, that's not going to stop us. And so in Acts chapter five, they end up getting dragged back in to this religious court called the Sanhedrin, along with the other apostles and the Jewish religious leaders almost put them to death. That in Acts 5.29 is where Peter makes this bold and famous statement, we must obey God rather than men. So amazing things are happening in Jerusalem and Judea as the apostles are not only performing miracles, but also preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and many are coming to saving faith. In Acts chapter six, we have the appointment of these seven men who are sometimes looked at as kind of prototypical deacons. One of them was a guy named Stephen, and one of them was a guy named Philip. And both of them are featured in the following chapters in Acts. Acts chapter six ends by talking about how powerful a preacher Stephen was, And he gets then dragged in before that Jewish religious council, the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 7, he preaches this amazing sermon going through the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is the Christ and how Israel had often responded in rebellion and unbelief. As you know, Stephen then is put to death. He is stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. But what's really interesting is in the text, Luke points out that there was a man there holding the coats of those who were putting Stephen to death, and that man was Saul of Tarsus. Now, I don't think Saul was just like the intern, like, hey, hold the coats, but I think Saul actually was the one in charge of Stephen's execution, and that will become significant a little bit later. Here we have a illustration of the lame man being healed, right? He couldn't walk and all of a sudden he can and he's dancing around and you can imagine again how amazing uh, that would be. Uh, I'll just say it one more time. I think the book of Acts is the greatest refutation of the modern charismatic movement in the Bible because what you see in Acts is real apostles, real tongues, real healing, And when you compare, there's also real prophecy, but when you compare all of that to what's happening today, what's happening today in the charismatic movement that calls itself apostleship or calls itself tongues or healing or prophecy is so obviously not the same that the counterfeit nature of the modern substitute becomes immediately apparent. So, My encouragement to you, if you're thinking through the charismatic cessationist kind of issue, study the book of Acts. I think it's the best way to recognize the charismatic counterfeit because it simply doesn't compare. Okay. Uh, I like this picture of the stoning of Stephen for a couple of reasons. Uh, This is a medieval uh, picture of this. Uh, Number one, this painting or illustration, this drawing, it It represents the fact that art is not a true reflection of actual history. So whenever you see religious art or anything that attempts to depict a historical event, you always have to recognize 
that it is being presented with a bias. In this case, obviously done by somebody in the Middle Ages who's going to you know, dress Stephen up like he's a medieval monk, when of course he didn't dress like a medieval monk. And then you even have you know, the inclusion of a yellow frisbee behind his head, which again is sort of that medieval indication of that, oh, he's, he's holy because he has some sort of halo. Um, the other thing that is obviously incorrect about this picture is that the way they present the stoning, it's like these guys pick up small little rocks and kind of throw them at Stephen, and that's just not an accurate depiction of what stoning actually involved. It involved massive stones being hurled upon a person to break their bones and crush them to death. Now, you can read all about that, of course, in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen looks up to heaven and not only sees Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, but then as he's being stoned to death, commits his spirit into the hands of the Lord. And you can just imagine in that moment that Stephen goes from being on trial to being in the presence of Christ. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And as I already mentioned, the word martyr comes from a Greek word, martus, that means to be a witness. Martyrs are those who were witnesses to Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. So here you have what I think is a more accurate depiction of the stoning of Stephen. But again, you always have to take religious art with a grain of salt. Now, after Stephen's death, so you had all of these pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire who came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. 3,000 of them get saved on the day of Pentecost, thousand more, thousands more in the weeks that follow. And, so the, and, and many of them just stay. So the Jerusalem church swells probably to maybe 20,000 people meeting in various locations throughout the city. But after the death of Stephen, persecution against Christianity begins to intensify. And many of these pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem start going back home. And as they go back home, they take the gospel with them. And so... We have then in Acts chapter 8, the gospel going to the Samaritans. That's actually through Philip. He preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. Later in Acts chapter 8, he preaches the gospel to a Jewish proselyte from Ethiopia who takes the gospel back to Ethiopia, which is super cool. And uh, then in Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. So Saul's persecution intensifies, and uh, you have, again, the scattering of these believers all throughout the Roman Empire. Some go to Cyprus, some go to Cyrene, some go to Antioch in the north, and that will become important for the flow of how God providentially spreads the gospel. In Acts chapter 9, you have Saul on his way to Damascus being thrown off of his horse, and uh, blinded by his vision of the risen Christ. And Saul is converted from being the number one persecutor of the church to becoming the church's number one missionary. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. In Acts 9, he ends up being baptized, actually, by a guy named Ananias. Not the same Ananias as Acts 5. You remember Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, 
That, by the way, is the only place in the New Testament where you have anyone slain in the spirit. That's in Acts 5. I'll let you read about that if you're interested. But uh, in Acts 9, a different Ananias who is actually afraid of Saul, and the Lord gives him the courage to meet Saul and to baptize him. Saul then spends several years being discipled by Christ himself, the risen Christ in the Arabian wilderness, and Galatians talks a little bit about that. And then after that, he returns to Damascus, and he's such a... I mean, he went from being like the religious leader's like all-star persecutor of Christianity to suddenly becoming the primary defender of the Christian faith. The religious leaders don't know what to do with Saul, and they try to arrest and kill him, and he escapes by being led over the wall of Damascus in a basket. In Acts 9, he comes to Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, he again encounters persecution. From there, he goes to a place on the coast called Caesarea Maritima, and then finally, he returns home to Tarsus, and all of that is in Acts chapter 9. And again, it's just fascinating to see how the Lord is sovereignly orchestrating all of these events to put his people in the places where he wants them to be so that they will be ready to accomplish that outgoing gospel purpose. Well, in Acts chapter 10, something amazing happens. So this, again, is probably about eight or nine years into church history by the time we get to Acts chapter 10. The Lord sends Peter down to Joppa, and it's actually really interesting. Peter is Peter Barjona, which means Peter the son of John, but Peter Barjona, and... If you remember from the Old Testament, there was another prophet named Jonah who got sent to Joppa. And when, well, he didn't get sent to Joppa, he fled to Joppa. He was sent to Nineveh. And you'll remember in the story of Jonah, Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Gentiles. So when he was in Joppa, it was all about getting on a ship and trying to sail away. Here's Peter in Joppa, Peter bar Jonah, sharing the same name. And instead of running away when God tells him to go witness to the Gentiles, Peter actually submits to that divine mandate. I think it's kind of neat to see how Peter functions in Acts 10 as like the anti-Jonah. Though God sovereignly (laughs) superintends even Jonah's disobedience to still accomplish the conversion of the city of Nineveh 600 years prior to Peter being there. But Peter sees the vision. The vision comes down with all the unclean things. The unclean things don't just represent dietary laws. They actually represent all of the pagan peoples surrounding Israel. And God says to Peter, no longer consider unclean that which I have cleansed. And it takes three times for this message to get through. And then as soon as the third message is delivered, there's a knock at the door and Peter is asked to go to the house of Cornelius in a nearby city, Caesarea Maritima, and there to preach the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile, and his family. Now listen, there may be those in this room today who are of Jewish heritage. And if that's the case, Praise the Lord. That's awesome. But most of us, myself included, are of Gentile heritage, which means we're non-Jewish. 
And Acts chapter 10 is the moment in church history where Gentiles are included, they're grafted in to Christ in a way that doesn't require them to become Jewish in order to become Christians. So I love Acts chapter 10 because the dietary thing, like I like bacon cheeseburgers and Acts chapter 10 justifies bacon cheeseburgers. That's awesome. But way more important than bacon cheeseburgers is the fact that Acts chapter 10, and this is what it's really about, is God incorporating Gentiles, those who previously were regarded as unclean, into the church because through Jesus Christ, they have been cleansed. So Peter, go back to that slide for a second. Peter goes uh, to Caesarea. I, I think it's interesting at the end of Acts 8, Philip went to Caesarea. And then at the end of Acts 9, Paul went to Caesarea. And likely both of them had been preaching the gospel in Caesarea. And now in Acts 10, Peter goes to Caesarea. And it's possible that Cornelius had already begun to hear certain things about Jesus through Philip and through Paul. And then when Peter and John come, then you have Cornelius actually converted and the Holy Spirit comes upon him just as the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. So amazing, amazing stuff. Now, when the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem hear about this, they're like, whoa, Gentiles, like that's a lot to take in. Peter, what in the world are you doing? Like you're not supposed to even enter the house of a Gentile. And so in Acts chapter 11, Peter goes back and he's like, look, this is what happened. This was the vision. This is what I said. This is the gospel I preached. This is how the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were converted. It was amazing. And if you read in the middle of Acts 11, I think it's verse 18, the, the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem marvel that God had seen fit to grant even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So an amazing development in church history. Now, according to Acts 11, the gospel was taken throughout the Roman Empire by Jewish Christians. We've talked about this. And some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, took the gospel to Antioch, and they didn't just witness to fellow Jewish people, but also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And as a result of that, there was a Gentile-slash-Jewish church that was started in Antioch, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. All right. Yeah, Barnabas gets sent up north to Antioch. I guess this is the part where I'm supposed to talk about that. It's always fun to get lost in your own PowerPoint. Um, in Acts chapter 11, so... After Peter's report to the Jerusalem council, Luke talks about the fact that because of the persecution of Stephen, Christians scattered. They took the gospel with them, including to places like Antioch, which was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was like the Chicago of the Roman Empire. They started a Jew slash Gentile church there, and they knew they needed help, so they asked the apostles for help. Because of Cornelius, the apostles in Jerusalem are like, yeah, God's working not just through Jewish people, but also through Gentile people. And so they send Barnabas to go be the pastor of the church of Antioch. 
First Baptist Church of Antioch. And so Barnabas goes and he's ministering there. And Luke says that there were so many people. I mean, it was like steadfast. There was no room for anybody else. And so Barnabas knew he needed help and he remembered Saul. By the way, Saul is not his pre-Christian name. I think sometimes we think that like he was Saul and then in Acts 9, he became Paul. That's not accurate. He's called Saul long after his conversion. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. And when he starts going on his missionary journeys, he uses his Greek name rather than his Hebrew name. But like many people in this time in church history, he had both a Hebrew name and a Greek name, right? Peter and Cephas. So multiple names for the same person. Okay, so... He goes to get Saul and Saul comes back. And in Acts chapter 11, Luke says that Barnabas and Saul co-pastored the church in Antioch for about a year, probably around the year AD 45 or so. And here's what I think is so amazing about that. This is so cool. Who was it that was in charge of Stephen's murder, his martyrdom in Acts chapter seven? Saul. So who was it that God used to instigate the fleeing of all of those Christians to other parts of the Roman Empire all the way back in the mid-30s? It was Saul. So here we are maybe 10 years later, and you have people from Jerusalem who fled Jerusalem because of Saul and came to Antioch And now, who is their pastor? Saul. Can you imagine going to church and being like, hey, pastor, remember when you were trying to kill me? Like, (laughs) that's so wild to me that like Saul becomes the pastor of the people who fled because he was the one that persecuted the church. And yet in God's providence, that's exactly how it all worked. So you can read about that in Acts chapter 11. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Acts chapter 12 talks a little bit about a guy named Herod Agrippa I and his persecution of the church, the death of James, the brother of John, the imprisonment of Peter, and then Peter's release. And then starting in Acts chapter 13, we have a series of missionary journeys. And I know that, I know that Pastor Brian actually went through Paul's missionary journeys with you guys not too long ago. And so we don't have to belabor this too much. I'm looking at the clock and realizing I'm probably not going to have time for Q&A at the end. Sorry, Jade. But um, the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, you can see the places where Paul went. And here's a map that shows you the whole kind of Roman Empire and just the scope of Paul's first missionary journey. But what I want to emphasize from his first missionary journey is when Paul and Barnabas got to a city called Antioch, but it was a different Antioch. It wasn't Syrian Antioch. It was Pisidian Antioch. Paul preaches a message in the synagogue there that is one of the longest sermons recorded in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 13. And Paul, as he typically did when he went into the synagogue, he started obviously with 
the Old Testament, and he showed from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ who was prophesied, and then he got into the historic truth claims of the gospel that he was persecuted, crucified, buried, and rose again. And then based on that historic truth, Peter, excuse me, Paul says this. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That is Paul's gospel in a nutshell, based on the historic truth of he was crucified, buried, and rose again. Therefore, you can be forgiven and you can be justified through faith in Christ. Forgiveness is the removal of your guilt before God. Justification is the imputation of Christ's righteousness so that you actually stand clothed in his righteousness such that God can declare you a sinner to be righteous, not because of anything you did, but because Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of your sin and he has imputed his righteousness to your account. That gospel is a gospel of grace alone, because we didn't do anything to earn it, through faith in Christ alone, based solely on his finished work. Now, the reason I mention that is because when Paul got back from his first missionary journey in Acts 15, and there's a lot we could say about that, but we won't, but when he got back from his missionary journey in Acts 15, all of a sudden there were these false teachers who showed up who claimed that believing in Christ alone was insufficient for these Gentiles to be considered Christians. They said that you had to not only believe in Jesus, you also had to keep the law of Moses. And Paul and Barnabas are so exercised about this, and rightly so, that they go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, they hear from, again, this group of false teachers who are saying, in order to be a Christian, you must not only believe in Jesus, but also be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. This leads to the first church council in church history. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council is recorded for us in Acts 15. And the issue at stake in the Jerusalem Council is the gospel. Is salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone? That was Paul's gospel. Or is salvation through faith plus circumcision plus following the works of the law? Well, what's interesting, and I think this is also recorded in Galatians 2, and that's where Paul kind of records some things that were happening behind the scenes. But what's interesting is that as Luke records what happened at the Jerusalem Council, you see in Acts 15, 7 through 11, that Peter stands up and Peter defends Paul. And in fact, Peter articulates the fact that the gospel is indeed a gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you look, I think it's verse 9, God made no distinction between us as Jews and Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, we do 
which says, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved through grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way as they are also. So I love that, that at the first church council, Peter stands up and defends Paul's gospel and reiterates the fact that Gentiles and Jews both are saved through faith, by grace, and it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I emphasize that because as Protestant evangelicals, we affirm a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That gospel was affirmed at the very first church council, and it was the gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that Peter reiterated. Well, as a result of the Jerusalem council, you have Paul then going out on a second missionary journey. I believe at this point he wrote the book of Galatians in which he argued, contended maybe, earnestly for the fact that the gospel of grace is a gospel apart from works and that to add works to the gospel of grace is to frustrate grace and destroy the gospel. I mean, he says it even more strongly than that. If somebody comes to you preaching a gospel other than what we have preached, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. So the second missionary journey then starts with Paul going back to the very same places where he went before. He goes to the churches of Southern Galatia, which would be Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and then he goes to Troas, and in Troas, God gives him a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul and now Silas and Timothy go across to Philippi and then to Thessalonica and uh, Berea and Corinth and Athens. And of course, you can read about all of that in uh, the book of Acts, but As a result of him going to these churches, he will later write letters to some of these churches. And of course, you recognize some of the names of these letters. The next two letters that Paul wrote were probably 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. In your New Testament, the books of the New Testament are categorized by history, Pauline epistles, general epistles, and then the book of Revelation. And within those categories, for the gospels, they're put in order of what the tradition the traditional church's view was in terms of the order in which they were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then the Pauline epistles are put in order from longest to shortest, from Romans to Philemon. But that's not the order in which Paul wrote them. So Galatians was first, first and second Thessalonians, second and third. And then on his third missionary journey, first and second Corinthians and Romans. And then from his imprisonment, the the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and then after his release, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and maybe, maybe the book of Hebrews. So we talked a little bit last week about the book of Hebrews, and um, at least I think that was in here. I don't know. Did we talk about the book of Hebrews last week? Oh, no, we didn't talk about the book of Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? That's the big question, right? Well, I think we all know the answer, the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. Let's move on. (laughs) Um, 
We know that the book of Hebrews, I, I won't just leave on a cliffhanger on that. We know that the book of Hebrews was written by someone very closely associated with Paul's ministry. The reason the book of Hebrews was recognized as apostolic by the early church was because of its association with Paul. And we know that it was closely associated with Paul because Timothy is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13, and Timothy was one of the close ministry companions of Paul. So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews knew Paul, was part of Paul's inner circle, and knew Timothy. The theology of Hebrews is distinctly Pauline, but the Greek of Hebrews is a little bit different than Paul's Greek. It's more like the, it's a little bit more sophisticated. It's more like the Greek that Luke uses in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts. So my own personal theory on Hebrews is that Hebrews represents a sermon preached by Paul that Luke summarized and wrote down. Uh, am I, how certain of that am I? I, I don't know. Um, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't Paul and Luke, then the other, I think, leading candidate is Apollos, based on the way that Luke describes Apollos at the end of Acts 18. But I'm pretty confident that it's one of those three individuals. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out. So the right answer again is the Holy Spirit. Yep, good, you got it. (laughs) Uh, Second missionary journey, you can see there a little bit expanded beyond. And here's a famous painting of Paul preaching in Athens, Acts 17. And of course, I wish we had more time to dig into those, but because Pastor Brian has already gone through the missionary journeys, we can kind of go quickly through this section. In Acts chapter 19, we have Paul's third missionary journey. He actually spends almost three years in Ephesus and sets up a pastoral training school there where he trains those who are going to go plant churches all throughout Asia Minor. In fact, we think that the seven churches of Revelation, the six plus Ephesus, were probably planted by those who were trained by Paul in Acts 19, verses 8 to 10. It talks about this training school that he set up, and he trained these men, and they went out, which I love that because we have a similar model here at Grace where we train those who go out and plant churches and train other pastors. Uh, Then he comes back to Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he is arrested So you can see here's the third missionary journey. And Paul's going back to the same churches because he's committed to follow up and to make sure that the leadership in those churches is godly leadership. He's arrested in Jerusalem and then transported from Jerusalem because there's a plot against his life to Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea on the coast was where the governors of Israel uh, were stationed. It's uh, not too far from Tel Aviv. It'd kind of be like Tel Aviv being the political capital and Jerusalem being the religious capital. The Roman governors didn't usually rule from Jerusalem. They ruled from Caesarea Maritima. And when Paul was taken there, he was put on trial by Festus, and uh, excuse me, by Felix. And then two years later, Felix was replaced by Festus. And so you can read Paul's defense before Felix and Festus and King Herod Agrippa II, who was the son of Herod Agrippa I in Acts 12, who put James, the brother of John, to death. Now, I do want to mention just one thing that I think is really interesting about Acts 26 
and Paul's defense before King Herod Agrippa. At the end of it, so Herod Agrippa, again, like the grandson or great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa grew up in that area, so he sort of knew a little bit about the Old Testament, and Paul uses that and proclaims the gospel to him. And at the end of it, Herod says to Paul, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. Now, what's interesting about this, this took place probably around the year 58 or 59, just before Paul got a Mediterranean cruise to Rome. Uh, There was a shipwreck involved in that. You can read about that in Acts 27. But he says, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. In AD 70, so about 11 or 12 years later, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans. The temple is going to be destroyed. And actually, the Christians in Jerusalem, knowing that there was trouble coming, had fled from Jerusalem. And they had found refuge, asylum, in a place called Pella, which was just across the Jordan River, in the region that was controlled by Herod Agrippa II. And this is the connection. Herod Agrippa II gave asylum to the Christians, I believe, because he was sympathetic to the Christians because he had heard Paul's testimony in Acts 26. So I just think that's really amazing that Paul gives his testimony. This guy is impacted. We don't know that he was converted, but he's impacted by hearing Paul's testimony. And just over a decade later, when Rome's coming in to destroy Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church finds refuge in this guy's territory because he was sympathetic to the Christian cause. I I don't know. I think that's interesting. Okay. Uh, Paul was in prison there for about two years. Probably during that time, Luke wrote his gospel. And then they all went to Rome and Paul was under house arrest in Rome for roughly two years. And that's likely when Luke wrote the book of Acts, which brings us to an to the end of the book of Acts. This was a, a portrait of Paul that was done in the 1500s. Paul looked nothing like that. So <laughs> I mainly put that in there just to tell you Paul didn't look anything like that. I think it's interesting that most of the portraits of Paul seem to have Paul kind of looking, I don't know, really stern, kind of downtrodden. I think it's because like 2 Corinthians 11, we know that Paul endured a lot for the sake of the gospel. So the artist impression of him is that, man, this is a guy that's like been beaten down for the gospel. But when I read like Philippians or other books of the New Testament that Paul wrote, that's not at all Paul's disposition. He was so glad and joyful and uh, overjoyed to get to even suffer for the sake of Christ that I just don't think Paul had a dour or sour demeanor. Okay, really quickly. After Paul's release, we believe he went on another missionary journey that is not recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, We believe that he did make it to Spain because he says in Romans, I want to go to Spain. And early church tradition says that he did make it to Spain. Then in the year 64 AD, there was a massive fire in Rome, and that fire was something that Nero used to blame the Christians. 
Uh, there was some accusations floating around that Nero himself had started the fire. And so in order to deflect blame, he blamed the Christians. And for the next five years from 64 to 68, you had severe persecution of Christians under Nero. We believe that Peter was arrested in Rome and crucified upside down under Nero and that Paul probably after that was also arrested. He was thrown into a dungeon and he, from there he wrote 2 Timothy where he talks about the fact that his life is almost over. Um, Mark wrote the memoirs of Peter and so the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter as written down by Mark. And you have the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, as I mentioned, the apostles leaving from Jerusalem and traveling to other parts of the known world. And then finally, we have the apostle John and his ministry sometime after the death of Peter and Paul. John traveled up to Asia Minor, maybe because of the deaths of Peter and Paul. That, um, that guy looks like he could do steadfast announcements. Um, I don't think... That, what? Why? I, I don't see how that was at all offensive, either to this guy or to the people who do steadfast announcements. It's, uh, anyway... Um, But the Apostle John, in the last three centuries of the first century, he was ministering in and around Asia Minor. He wrote a series of letters for 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote his gospel probably in the 80s, and he intentionally supplemented what was in the first three synoptic gospels. And then in the 90s, uh, during the reign of Domitian, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Okay, as we land the plane here, the end of an era and the end of my time. While the death of the Apostle John, or with the death of the Apostle John, the apostolic age came to an end. And as we mentioned already, subsequent generations view that apostolic age as unique, including because the canon of scripture was completed during the apostolic age. And as the book of Acts demonstrates the gospel really did make it from Jerusalem to, to Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so you have the launch point of church history with the gospel going forth to all nations. And we, of course, are the beneficiaries of that. Okay, that was a lot of information. And you gave me two extra minutes this morning. And I'm so grateful. And please don't tell Pastor Brian that I went long because we want to protect his heart. Okay, let me pray for us and then you'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done in the history of the church, all because of your son and the good news of salvation that we can be forgiven and justified through him. It's all because of him. And so we live for him and look forward to being with him for all of eternity. And we pray this in his name, amen.